0: hello and welcome to fast forward presented by commotion your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility as always i'm your host greg lindsey director of strategy for commotion and as always i'm joined by jonah bliss vp of media marketing for commotion welcome back jonah
1: hey greg it's uh, a lovely day outside you know it just went from unseasonably cool and drizzly to unseasonably hot Getting my second shot in a couple of days, and I had a delicious churro for lunch. So it must be summer in SoCal. <laughs> that is
0: that was a real snapshot of uh, mid-pandemic America, right there. So I'm I'm glad you're living the dream. Climate change, pandemics, it's all there, all, all there in that snapshot. Churros, yeah. <laughs> Well, to kick things off for this week, we have a great guest who's going to come up in the second half, my friend Scott Malcolmson, uh, who is a geopolitical trends analyst. Uh, he's a principal at the Strategic Inside Group uh, and also at FutureMap, uh, the G- another geostrategic firm out of Singapore. Um, writer for foreign affairs, wrote the book Splinternet, and he's going to be on here to talk a bit about all the really big picture issues that we sort of hint at week after week, the chip shortage, the lithium mergers, trade issues with China and Chinese EVs, and is sort of going to parse that for us in terms of what it means for global supply chains. So we'll have Scott out in a bit. But in the meantime, we got to start with some lighter things, namely cloud kitchens and Travis Kalanick's so-called Temple of Bros, according to a a great deep dive by Business Insider, uh, that basically Travis kalanick appears to have learned absolutely nothing from his uber departure and is running the same toxic culture
1: that he instilled there um Joe Houghton, why, think this why should he have learned anything i mean he, he, he got paid he, he built a you know industry defining company and sure he kind of at the end like got pushed out but he still got his paycheck and uh now he doesn't have to deal with like the, the no fun part of running the business so i'm not shocked that uh, he didn't earn new stripes I would say the one lesson he definitely
0: earned is don't have any VCs on your board. It's just him and the Saudis are backing him, and like there's literally no one to stop him at this point. So I guess it shouldn't be surprising that's what Travis is up to. But from from super pumped to super duper pumped, I guess (laughs) the sequel will write itself. But but it's interesting, you know, the, the bet that Travis made when he left Uber that it was time to like sort of you know move up or down the value chain depending how you see it there by getting into the real estate side is seems to be paying off. I mean, you know, Cloud Kitchens evolves as a business. But the, the news item that really jumped out for me this past week was the fact that Prologis, which, you know, by as, has by far the most uh, square footage of industrial properties under management of any company in the U.S., is buying the Hilltop Mall in Richmond, California, right off I-80. It's been a dead mall for years. And they're going to redevelop it, if they can get the zoning clearance, into a mixed-use project with retail, of course, but also housing, sure thing. And logistics, and I thought that's just really fascinating because, because for a while now, me and guests we've had on here, like Anthony Townsend from Ghost Road, have talked about the idea that, like, you know, you're going to start. Putting together homes and logistics centers instead of beds and sheds, it's going to be beds above sheds. And I just think it's interesting. It really mirrors the last year of the pandemic, where like office and retail as categories and real estate have gotten crushed, and housing and where and housing and warehousing are the two big growth categories. Which of course, you know, all of this mobility revolution lies under that. So, so Jonah, do you do you see having a warehouse next door as a as an amenity or as a as a blight? (laughs) I think a lot of people would love to have like instant delivery from the warehouse next door.
1: If it gets me my, my Amazon junk even sooner. Um, no, I, I mean, I think the the sad thing is that I, somehow I suspect, uh, given that this is, you know, in the Bay Area, that the people living next to the warehouse will not be the ones working at the warehouse. They'll still be slogging through a 90-minute commute from Stockton or Fresno or something. So uh, not not quite cutting down on the, the carbon footprint all the way, but uh, I guess at least it means your uh, iPhone case isn't making that same journey over the past. <laughs>
0: Well, it is interesting. There's a, a separate development uh, in Baltimore, where you know Amazon, of course, has several large facilities, as they do everywhere now. Um, they are, in fact, actually building affordable housing meant for the Amazon workforce. So, the Amazon company town is coming for somebody. Um, but, it's, but it's interesting how we're like, oh, oh, to be the, to, the Pinkertons uh, keeping that town safe. <laughs> Oh, 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 wow. I could, I, the next act for Blackwater is, is coming up soon here. <laughs> um, but it is But it's interesting you mentioned the environmental cost of this, too, because, you know, the, there there was another report this week about, you know, really the American sort of supply chain system logistics are reaching their breaking point when it comes to all these e-commerce and what it means for the environment. There's a survey that Alex Partners, which does, you know, big restructurings of companies, among other things, you know, noted that, you know, 70, 71% of American consumers are concerned for the environment and 28% say it's imp- Impacting their bit, buying decisions, it, it'll be really curious about like you know uh, how how these supply chains will start to handle all this stuff, and also the returns part. That was that was an interesting report that came out that like the returns functions of this stuff is overwhelmed. I don't know. I bring that up because you know there's an interesting thought experiment where you know what if Amazon actually acted on its patent for predictive shipping and just started sending you stuff without you actually ordering it, um, and then you know if you don't want it, you have to return it. That's that's the kind of thing that's like the next phase of this, right? Oh my God. Uh, yeah. minority report uh shipping yeah, exactly. Well, Shop, if you get a mid-
1: thought crime for shopping,
0: <laughs> it's, it's coming on its way. Well, moving on from logistics, you know, speaking of other characters we have on here, it's been a big week uh, in the news for Tesla. It seems that way, again, every week, but it's also earnings season. So we saw Tesla come out with its earnings. I've already blanked out on its actual performance as if that actually matters to the stock price, lol. Um, but I thought it was interesting that after taking its much-ballyhooed position in Bitcoin, because of course, why not? They actually sold 10% of it to actually hit their earnings targets and like I, I somewhere i wish jack welch were alive from ge because you know he was famous for smoothing out earnings now we've reached the point where like tesla has a stockpile of bitcoin so it can sell off part of its part of that cash to basically smooth out its earnings anyway any way it likes so i don't know jonah is that that's the new play right spacs are done
2: i
1: i know we both love matt levine's uh, newsletter and i i feel like he he had the perfect take on it where it's like <laughs> elon musk has this uh you know, God given ability to manipulate the market. And you know, it's his fiduciary duty to do it on behalf of his shareholders, I guess. Like if you can just make money out of thin air, you know, do it. Why not?
0: That's true. And if he didn't, well, you know, to quote a, a Matt Levine catchphrase, everything is securities fraud. Someone would write him a letter if he didn't yeah. sell that Bitcoin. Well <laughs> also at Tesla News, you know, we'll come back to Musk in a second. And but but first I would interrupt uh, the the Tesla cavalcade here. So Revel, which is of course known for its electric scooters, has announced it wants to roll out its own all Tesla ride-hailing service in New York City, uh, which is interesting in two respects. Number one, it does not, in fact, have permission to do so. Uh, you know, uh, under its under its arrangements. Details, and, details. And two, it's really interesting. Everything old is new again. I covered at the time in 2014 when the you know late Tony Shea of Zappos wanted to launch his own ride-hailing service in Vegas with 100 Teslas. So you know now we're back to this, this sort of premium Tesla fleet, which I think is interesting. But um, but yes. But moving on, you know, to the real seriousness, Elon Musk is also slated to host Saturday Night Live on May 8th. know how do you think this is going to go? You know, he can't even host an earnings call. I don't know how he's going
1: to host SNL. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... Who wants that? Even if you're, like, an Elon fanboy, like, is that is that what you want out of him? Like, to see him try and make his, like, same awkward Ford 420 jokes on Twitter, like, but verbally? Like, it's not like his um, segments on Joe Rogan's, uh, you know, series are particularly <laughs> witty. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd rather talk about the Revel thing honestly, because to me, like, <laughs> that's more interesting than just seeing a rich person on TV. Because it's like, yeah, it's it's they're kind of moving to being an all electric everything brand, seemingly right. They started with e uh, mopeds, and they started doing charging stations. Um, I mean, to me, if this gets approved, of course, it's a big question about like how deep is the. The Uber and Lyft moat, right? We've seen them both start really running away from their kind of, you know, what had been their their supposed, you know, saving grace that they're going to move to be all robo taxis, and that's how they would, you know, keep costs down. And, and now they basically spun or sold those off, right? Um, so if it's this easy to spin up your own competitor, uh, and if Uber and Lyft continue to not really make money off uh, their own TNC activities, like you know, what, what's what's the market going to look like in a couple more years?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, brand obviously counts for something, but the thing I liked about Rebel is like, you know, it's it's employee drivers, so I think that was interesting. And like, yeah, perhaps the real stack is is not like you know uh, paying your paying your workers poverty wages and having them drive their own vehicles. It's having a centralized fleet with a great you know total toll uh, cost of ownership because it's ele- all electric and you already own the charging infrastructure. That maybe maybe that's the real play, so that could be interesting. But but I brought up the Saturday Night Live gig because I want to come to the other thing, which is there was an interesting discussion on Twitter, which is where I spend all my time. You know, with writers like, you know, Josh Barrow and Matt is pointing out that like Musk's other gift besides manipulating the markets with just the sound of his voice is, uh, is the fact that, you know, that he managed to make, uh, you know, EV safe for those on the, on the, on the center right side of the spectrum. Like, you know, you now, know, those of us who are libs who hate Elon Musk, uh, well now you can buy a Tesla to own the libs. And, um, and that is a really fascinating characteristic given that it's been associated of course with, you know, granola hippies, uh, for all this time going back 20 or 30 years, um, and that's an interesting setup because it is, in fact, like the people who buy pickups and SUVs are, in fact, you know, generally, you know, to the right in their political leanings. There's a whole study that Streetsblog quoted about, you know, that that's it's exactly who you would imagine buying this stuff. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, can can you make buying a Tesla transgressive? I mean, if it saves the planet, I guess it's okay, Jonah.
1: Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I feel like they're like maybe a little too ahead of the the ball here on this one. Like, yes, they definitely Tesla moved the market from being, you know, just um, You know, kind of uh, as you said, crunchies in their garage with a bunch of batteries and wires to being something that's kind of you know sleek and sexy and sporty. Uh, But in my mind, that just sort of like that shifted the market within the same you know handful of states, anyways, where it's you know they're all basically bought on West Coast and northeastern states. Um, And yeah, so now like a a rich suburban dad, uh, you know, might buy a Tesla where he wouldn't have bought uh, you know uh, that whatever that Saturn EV one was, but. that, to me, that's still like okay, but he's probably still left of center in the national sense. Uh, like, yeah, they're they're all racing to make giant you know SUVs now, but I don't know if we've actually started to see like the median EV voter uh, you know on the other side of the uh, the political aisle yet. Well well, it'll be interesting to see the
0: dynamics of this too and also in terms of like purchasing decisions there's another great uh, piece about the Osborne effect which is sort of like you know delaying purchases here and what is what does it mean for the OEMs uh, you know if basically people stop you know they don't buy an electric vehicle yet but what if it actually causes them to defer purchases of vehicles now we've seen this huge surge you know of course in in spending and and vehicles over the last twelve months uh, for reasons, including a pandemic, they're too numerous to list. But Jonah, I mean, as a, yeah, again, as a former EV owner, I'm curious you're, you're thinking, what is the psychology on this? Does that ring true with you in terms of like, we're now entering a treacherous period for the OEMs where they don't really have enough EVs to bring to the market, but people might actually act almost as yeah. if they do?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it does. And I feel like we've kind of been in this holding pattern for a while now where it's always like, oh, in another year, just the number of EVs is going to be so much better and greater and more diverse. And it's just like, you get there and it's like, oh, well, now there's one more company making a giant electric SUV. <laughs> Um, I mean, so I've, it's definitely affected my thinking in terms of like, oh, like, you know, what, what, what's just around the corner, but uh, I'm more kind of stuck just waiting for the will they or won't they with some of the the changed federal incentives, right? It's like if I wait a few more months and all of a sudden I get a few more thousand bucks back from Uncle Sam, like I'm willing to to just kind of make it work until then. Um, but I would say on the net, Greg, like if, if we're doing anything that defers people from buying more cars, like <laughs> I'll call that an
0: unintended win. <laughs> That's true. I, was, I guess we could sort of chalk it up that way. Yes, uh, less less vehicles overall. Well, 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 well. This piece, this is sort of going to segue into what Scott's going to talk about. It's been interesting also during during earnings season to see you know from the various OEMs about their sort of plans. We've seen you know Volkswagen recently has rushed uh, to basically lock up battery orders. Ford has announced that it's going to you know and has hinted at this before uh, about basically you know beefing up its investments in batteries. It's opening a, a learning lab and and really thinking through about like you know what the what the new supply chain looks like. What the You know, component chain looks like for this, and um, and I think it's really interesting here that you know that this idea that you know the Ford is eventually going to you know develop and manufacture its own battery cells and batteries is due in part to like the fact that like China and Chinese companies seem to have gotten way out in front of this you know um, McKinsey did a hair down here of basically sort of like the Chinese you know battery market and how that's affecting their own development of their own auto industry as well so I don't know I'm, ve- I'm very curious yeah. with you know about how this sort of affects it here and like and again this ties into the chip shortage as well but sorry go ahead yeah. John
1: well, th- there's one thing I kind of like about this where it's you know one, one of the kind of labor critiques of uh, you know, EVs and, and I would say you know, kind of the green transition in general is the implications for manufacturing jobs right like if you're not making transmissions that's a good and you're not repairing them you're not you know, doing them the whole life cycle it's a good like i think roughly one third of automotive jobs that are expected to disappear um, but so i'm curious you know if, if we then start to take more of the value chain and onshore it right if we start making the batteries uh in the u.s like you know those are jobs that didn't exist before so i, I think there is some way to kind of look at this from a A labor perspective is a win.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, again, it comes back to, you know, again, the the onshoring discussion is an important one in in a way because, you know, when it comes to, like, chips, for example, of this, like, there's a number of implications. Like, Intel has announced it's going to start building chip fabs in the United States again. And, you know, Bloomberg did a great interview with a guy named Mike Hogan, who's at Global Foundries, about some of this. And, you know, he points out that, like, you know, yeah, I mean, chips building chips in the United States is more expensive than Asia, but not that much more expensive, particularly if you've got, you know, a $50,000 car that you can't actually ship because of $15 worth of chips. And, um... So here is an interesting question again. Like you know, we talk about like the, you know the EVs and AVs or smartphones on wheels. Well, we're reaching the point where the chip makers are being like, well, maybe the automotive companies ought to stop buying the stuff off the shelf or off the open market and start designing their own like software and chip architectures to actually drive this the same way that Apple does. Like we're reaching the point where the OEM supply chain is starting to converge in a way with the, you know, with the, with the tech industry supply chain. Truly. Are are we witnessing the death of uh, JIT manufacturing? (laughs) Well, it's funny you ask that. I think that's a good way to like start coming up to Scott here because we'll bring out him in a moment because yeah, this is exactly what we talked about. Like the end of 50 years of supply chain stuff, going back to Toyota and like, you know, do everything just in time. Do everything out of this flexible network of suppliers. Perhaps that is decisively over, and perhaps it started
1: with you know the
0: Trump administration in many ways. So, so or, with that, or maybe you
1: know, that only works if you're <laughs> a Japanese automaker and you can still make all the necessary components within you know a hundred miles of where you finalize the assembly too. So, well, yeah, well, more complications when you're trying to get things from um, you know Taoyung to Detroit that's
0: true toyota did have the ability to basically have them literally relocate down the street and only bring it over when they needed it to keep it off the books yeah things have evolved since then well uh, with that let's welcome out again scott is going to join us here to discuss yeah china chips lithium and more thanks for joining us scott well it's great to be here greg thank you well, I, I, it's great to have you on because you know we don't generally discuss geopolitics and and, and the great game when, uh, on the Commotion podcast. So yeah, I, it's really great to have you here for our listeners to talk a bit about some of these larger issues that has been percolating through all of our episodes here: the chip shortage, the lithium mergers, all these sorts of things. And yeah, I, I guess as a first question, there is is to what extent will the, I guess to what extent will these industries affect the evolution of electric vehicles in all of its forms, and how much risk is there out there to the EV revolution, given the supplies of lithium and given the chip shortages and given the tensions between the U.S., China and beyond?
2: Um, so I guess I guess the first point to make is that China is much, or I should say, Chinese companies as well as the Chinese government. Are much more prepared for the kind of dynamics that you're describing. Um, you know, the business has been has been growing there for way over a decade. Uh, the state has been behind, but well behind it for well over a decade, spending billions and billions and billions of dollars. Uh, so, you know, China is kind of prepared for an environment of competition over supply chains uh, and over resources supplies in a, in a way that most other states, really any other state, uh, you know, better than any other state is, is prepared. So, so the other major players, so like Germany, uh, the U.S., South Korea, uh, Japan are much more vulnerable than China simply because China kind of went at the EV um, landscape, you know, from, from, from cobalt to cell technology and, and everything else to, to, you know, charging networks. Uh, it, it went at it in a very coherent way. Um, and a way that makes it much more resilient to the kind of geopolitical uh, shocks that, that would hit other places, such as the U.S. Um, on the other hand, uh, because China's politics are what they are, China will itself be hit or the target <laughs> of directed geopolitical shocks more than some other countries. So, so it's, it's, you know, I don't think it'll all come out in the wash. I think at the end that China and its companies are much better prepared, you know, and, and uh, CATL is a good example that its its first German-built uh, battery plant should open later this year if it hasn't already. Uh, you know, it's it's got a big chip on battery recycling. It's basically China's second biggest battery uh, recycler. Uh, it's put money into, um, obviously, lithium-ion batteries is where it got going, but it's put a lot into ternary lithium batteries, which use a lot less cobalt. And at the same time, it just made a big deal for a bigger share of one of the biggest cobalt mines in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So what that amounts to is a major Chinese multinational that sort of almost, you know, intuitively manages to hedge all of its bets so that it will be resistant to these kinds of geopolitical shocks. Uh, I mean, that's
0: interesting at multiple levels, like at a, at a national level and a firm level. So, let's tackle the firm level for a second, since you mentioned that, that they're buying cobalt mines in the Congo. Um, and I, I'm thinking of the, the Ford news, of course, that they are now getting into battery battery manufacturing. We're seeing like Volkswagen lock up supplies, too. Um, are we seeing like, what does this mean from a supply chain perspective for these companies, right? Is this, is this River Rouge 2.0, where like they're going to have to start thinking about soup to nuts control of their supply chains versus just sort of, you know, buying from the markets and these sort of, you know, dis- aggregated supply chains which we've had for i don't know 40 50 years now uh what what does this what does this mean to them
2: well i think i think they are starting to think in terms of um you know if not soup to nuts then some (laughs) some variation of soup to nuts uh you know vw has plans to build six ev cell factories in in europe so that and presumably some number of those will be in in Germany, uh, at the same time, CATL has been supplying VW with batteries for quite a while, and CATL is itself building building an assembly plant in Germany. So, um, you know, whether VW uh, or Ford, you know, the degree to which they'll like really localize that production, I, I think it's sort of hard to say. But but that's undeniably uh, the trend. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say you—you
0: you wrote a recent piece for Foreign Affairs uh, on sort of the the autarky. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right of of the U.S., India, and China, and the sort of yeah, the sort of almost you know national national defense aspect of, of relocalizing and, 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 you know, decoupling from the others. I mean, again, I, you know, how, 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 how might we see ripple effects go through the OEMs and other aspects of the mobility industry? I thought, again, coming back to the chips, I thought it was interesting that like Caterpillar, you know, cited the chip shortage as a big problem with its earnings this, uh, this last quarter. So yeah, yeah. How, how does that get resolved? Do we start seeing, you know, more like Intel's moves to build domestic chip manufacturing again and, and everyone's going to have their own sort of domestic industries just in case?
2: well in the case of the us i think it's uh, like sort of hybrid right so intel could start doing more production in the us and has said has said it will uh but you know tsmc has said it will do more production or some production in in the united states as well mm-hmm. so the the us is um it's uh in so many ways very different from china right so so like when when you look at um uh, uh like lg and, and sk are going to be building more in the united states tsmc in the united states you know these are the u.s uh u.s corporations use these sort of let's say allied suppliers or suppliers in allied countries Mm -hmm. to kind of make up for the um terrestrial deficits in in production whereas china does not do that at all it's it's really the opposite it'll have a company like lg that'll be involved Domestically to a point, but it 's really about eventually having you know all internal um, all internal production or maximizing its uh, its self sufficiency as as uh, Xi Jinping uh, has taken to saying, which is an old Maoist slogan, something I talked about in my article, but that you know he 's revived for the for the current era with the thought that if China's going to have a great tech future it 's going to have to be able to you know make uh, as much as it can. Uh, domestically, you know, I mean, it's one of the really interesting things with China, which is also a big question for the German car industry, is whether uh, whether China will continue to need German demand. I mean, I personally think that it will, but right now, politically, China is so oriented towards increasing internal demand and not worrying so much about external demand um, that you know it, it might make some mistakes along those lines.
0: Interesting. Well, whatever. Well, that the next question there is like you know how how might we see a bifurcation of markets given these sorts of tensions, right? I mean, in the Trump administration, I remember, or it struck me at least at the time that you know that uh, automakers might have to make a tough choice. You could have the relaxed cafe standards that the Trump Trump administration wanted, but then you risk you know building cars for a market that you know literally would be useless anywhere else in the world given tighter emissions restrictions. In the case of China, you have all these, you know, budding EV makers. um, But I wonder if, you know, because of escalating trade tensions, whether, you know, they will ever actually enter the United States or or might deal with some of these markets. So I I don't know. I'm curious your thoughts there about, like, what's the sort of bigger picture here in terms of, like, you know, the ongoing tensions between multiple nations and what it means for, you know, what it means for consumers, right, to actually own these cars or, or the ability to acquire them.
2: I th- uh, you know, as usual, it depends on it depends on the countries and 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 the companies, right? So, yeah. like for example, Latin America has a pretty underdeveloped uh, EV business, kind of. No matter what part of it you look at, uh, except um, as a source of copper and and lithium, um, Chile and and Argentina are both really major uh, uh, lithium producers right now, but. At the same time, you know BYD, which is a very large, uh, uh, you know, producer of EVs in in, in China. Uh, I think Warren Buffett's investment in it has uh, gone up by about three thousand percent since it, since uh, his initial investment. Uh, BYD owns about or, or serves about ninety percent of the global market for electric buses. And so, a company like that, you would think it would be able to uh, start to sell cars and other EVs, kind of on the back of the connections that is made through selling, through selling buses. So um, it just, you know, it varies, it varies from, from market to market. It's really, really inconsistent. You know, Africa is a totally different market as well. Again, like Latin America, the source of a lot of these uh, necessary substances, uh, minerals for EVs, but with a, with not much of a market for, for the EVs themselves.
0: Well, it is interesting you mentioned BYD and buses because, of course, you know, obviously as part of President Biden's, you know, plans to invest in infrastructure and <laughs> remake large swaths of America. There's been whole discussions about, you know, electrifying uh, the various public fleets of the United States government. And and I wonder if they you know, by America provisions and, and other such measures will effectively lock BYD out of that. Um, it's something to watch there too. I wonder. Um,
2: BYD has been in the American market, you know, and yeah. but, you know, it's just uh, – I don't know. I mean, honestly, Greg, I feel I feel like we've we're 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 sailing in new waters here. You know, it it the maybe the turnaround was during the Trump administration. I, I suppose that it was, but I'm not seeing anything with this administration that's sort of taking us back to uh you know to the disaggregated supply chains of of yesteryear. It just doesn't there there the trends aren't in that direction. And but the U.S., you know, whether it's in in electrical ve- electric vehicles or uh, you know aspects of the EV supply chain or chips or whole lots of other things like five G equipment, uh, it you know it had made such a gigantic bet on the fundamental security of global supply chains, uh, and it's coming to regret that bet. And 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 when the U.S. kind of Historically, has tried to turn on this dime. It kind of the dime gets crushed, but the U.S. usually does turn it around. So there, there could be, you know, actually quite a large reshoring. Or it's you can't call it reshoring because it wasn't, you know, you're not bringing anything back that you did. You're 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 bringing something back that you've never done. So reshoring is kind of an odd word for it. Interesting.
0: Well, I guess this is the last question then is, is, you know, what are the trends we should keep an eye on or what are the interesting bellwethers you think of this, of how this will develop? I mean, I, you know, I, I obviously have been following the news of, you know, you know big Australian lithium tie-ups, like obviously new mines coming online um, in the United States and elsewhere. I, I, I'm curious, like, you know, what are the potential flashpoints? We talk about Taiwan and, and TSMC and, you know, and who controls the chips. I saw a great formulation that, you know, that, you know, it's only natural that, you know, the, that basically geopolitical tensions follow the most important resource of its era, and if that you know, in the era of oil, that made it, you know, the Middle East, and now in the era of of chips and silicon, it's moving to Taiwan. So I don't know. I'm curious. I guess I guess what what, do you, what is the next act, and what are you keeping
2: your eye on? I'm keeping my eye. Well, let me let me put it let me put it this way. What what makes it different from, um, you know, uh, trying to secure rubber supplies in Malaysia or trying to secure your oil supplies in Saudi Arabia? What you're trying to do now is to secure not just raw material supplies, which are a big part of it, but also many different points along a supply chain. And that's that's just the, that's why I said I feel like it's a new era, because, because that's, that's a whole different kettle of fish. You know, and and to, to, to nail down that kind of thing, you have to as a state. Uh, You have to or as a company with geopolitical worries, you need to be able to look at where your risk points are uh, on a map that has like a thousand or or ten thousand pieces rather than two pieces. And, And so, you know, my view is that politically, but also from a business point of view, that process of, you know, of, of sort of accepting the, the semi-permanent intersection of geopolitics and, and the supply chain, very much including the manufacturing of components as well as and even the provision of services as well as the securing of raw materials, that is the trend that you need to, uh, to keep your eye on. Now, wh- which states will be good at that, which companies, which industries uh, is, is, a, is a separate question. Thank
0: you so much for joining us, Scott. Great to be here.
2: You know, it just occurred to me, other
0: that the one company I didn't ask God about was Tesla, of course. And I think it's really interesting because Elon Musk, you know, makes regular trips to China, has stayed so far in Xi Jinping's good graces. But do you think that can last? I mean, I wonder if we're going to reach this point where, like, the old idea of the multinational as being apolitical is, is also sort of ending in a way here where you kind of have to pick a side, particularly given the, you know, the national importance of, you know, domestic auto manufacturing to so many countries.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, if this is a new Cold War, who's who's going to be the McDonald's that manages to somehow, <laughs> somehow straddle both sides? Yes, but, and you.
2: Um, well, oh, okay, well, go
0: ahead. I was to say you say that, and yet we know that Tom Friedman's Golden Arches theory of conflict prevention is
1: not true either. So, you know, perhaps uh, perhaps <laughs> Tesla's Nobel rather of anything. Wow, uh, Tom Friedman wrong about something. I'm <laughs> shocked, but. Um, no, I mean, it, it is an interesting point that, yeah, there's, and I'd say there's an exposure level. It's very different for each of the OEMs, right? Some of them actually do pretty well in China currently. Some of them have been trying and failing for decades now. So in a way, it's like, you know, maybe FCA's, you know, years of futility could actually pay off if, if the sales ends up being, you know, that there's tariffs and, you know, kind of uh, shenanigans to, to keep uh, Chevys out of people's hands. Well, somewhere
0: Sergio Marchionne is smiling then, perhaps. Um Well, great. Well, I think that takes us to the end of another great episode. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. As always, Jonah, always a pleasure. Um, And for now, we're going to take you out. Uh, Until next week, until another episode of Fast Forward, take care.